Good afternoon. This is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. Today is, well, we're confused with this again because on my time, it is Sunday, July the 17th, but Karen is always ahead of everybody. <laughs> always, Australia. always. It's, and it's, it's Monday the 18th down here. She's on the leading edge of progress. It's July the 18th. And Laura Snyder is with me as well. And today is a very, very special podcast where we are going to analyze a provision of the Internal Revenue Code, which I think would be of great interest to accidental Americans. Would you agree with that, Karen? Absolutely, John. I think this would be very interesting to those accidental Americans who are finding trouble convincing their banks that they're not. Um, U.S. citizens. So, yeah, the whole problem comes up from FATCA, right? So maybe, John, you could really briefly explain how FATCA determines who is subject to uh, reporting by, by foreign financial institutions. Absolutely. We can, we can start there because, you know, for people having trouble getting bank accounts and all that good stuff, FATCA is really the problem, isn't it? Because you know, what happens is they go in and uh, all of a sudden it's it's revealed that they were born in the USA, making them, I suppose, a presumptive tax cheat from birth. And as everybody knows, uh, the implementation of FATCA has rolled out with a bunch of intergovernmental agreements, which are fundamentally the same. But basically what happens uh, once somebody's been determined to be a U.S. person as all these problems arise, they're born. So how are they determined to be a U.S. person? I mean, they left the U.S. 50 years ago and they haven't done anything right. um, with the U.S. How, how, who, who gets to decide that they're still a U.S. citizen? Well, you're asking two questions. Uh, the first is, are they a U.S. citizen? And the second is, who decides? Um, as you know, a, a U.S. place of birth makes one presumptively a U.S. citizen, presumptively a U.S. citizen, unless they have relinquished U.S. citizenship. Uh, and certainly having a certificate of loss of nationality would be proof of having relinquished it. So a certificate of loss of nationality, at least for immigration purposes, would be a sufficient but not a necessary condition to prove loss of US citizenship. But what's fascinating here to answer, I think what you're really asking Karen is, believe it or not, right at the beginning in the definition section of the IGAs on page seven, for listeners, the term US person means a US citizen or resident individual. So born in the USA, whoop, it's suspected to be a US citizen. But then it goes down and this is what's relevant for our discussion today. It says this paragraph shall shall be interpreted in accordance with the U.S. Internal Revenue Code. Wow. So basically they're saying that you look at the tax rules for losing citizenship and not the immigration and nationality law rules. That is exactly what they are saying. You look at the tax rules. And, you know, where then I guess the question is, well, where do we find the tax rules? And uh, the tax rules are actually found in Section 877AG4 of the Internal Revenue Code, right? Or at least what it means to, to for expatriation, right? What it means to have lost U.S. citizenship. And in a nutshell, 
without getting into the details particularly, what 877-AG4 says is that um, you've lost an order to prove loss of U.S. citizenship, you're going to have to have a certificate of loss of nationality. All right. That is for expatriating acts taking place after June 16th, 2008. At a minimum, it does mean that. Mm -hmm. uh, so does that answer the first part of your question, Karen? So, so, the, so basically what you're saying is that for the FATCA IGAs, um, what controls is not whether you have the actual right to enter the U.S. or not with a U.S. passport, but whether the Internal Revenue Code considers that you have relinquished your U.S. citizenship. That is absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. And, okay. you know, it's a function partly of the nationality laws found in Section 349A of the Immigration Nationality Act. Partly the tax laws, 877-AG4 of the Internal Revenue Code. Which but do reference the inter, inter, Immigration and Nationality Act. Does 877-AG4 reference the Immigration It does, yes. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to read in what it says? Well, it says the date uh, is based on when they've renounced subject to... Um, or pursuant to paragraph five of 349A of the Immigration and Nationality Act, or the date that someone furnishes a signed statement um, under paragraphs one, two, three, or four of that section 349A. So right. it's it's referenced in, in the Internal Revenue Code. So that they aren't completely divorced from each other. But basically what the Internal Revenue Code is doing is making the date that you lose your citizenship for tax purposes uh, later, certainly no earlier, but later than the date that you um, that you lose it, uh, nationality for um, immigration, immigration and nationality purposes. Right. Well, that is absolutely true for expatriating acts found in 349A, A1, 2, 3, and 4. It's absolutely true for expatriating acts that took place after June 3rd, 2004. Okay. Right. Not right. necessarily for those before, but that's getting very, very complex. Getting into the weeds. Okay. So let me just summarize where we're at so far. FATCA, the FATCA IGAs say that the Internal Revenue Code determines when someone's lost their citizenship, not the Immigration and Nationality Act. The Internal Revenue Code provides a date that might be the same as when Immigration and Nationality Act Shows, shows that citizenship is lost, but might be later. Uh, that's exactly right. And in the case of a renunciation, the two dates will actually be the same. They will be the same, but but it could be later if there's another way of losing. If yeah, someone's for lost example, let, let's imagine that somebody naturalized as, say, a Canadian citizen after June 16th, 2008, on, say, uh, you know, January 1st, 2012, I never sought a certificate of loss of nationality, decides they want to, they go to the consulate to get a, a CLN, a certificate of loss of nationality on January 1st, 2020. The loss of citizenship for tax purposes would be January 1st, 2020. Okay. Right. But okay. arguably, okay, arguably, if somebody naturalizes a Canadian citizen, say January 1st, 1990, 
All right, and then that was before any of these rules were even in, so they couldn't have pushed. That, that's right. I mean, I think that there's a strong argument that for them, the expatriation date, because it was prior to 2004, would be the 1991. But let's not get too far off our main. Yeah. Topic. Yeah. No. Okay. So. Okay. So basically, we've got that so far. FATCA says that the Internal Revenue Code um, prevails when we when we talk about when someone's lost their U.S. citizenship. And they, um, but but there's something else in the Internal Revenue Code, John, that we need to to unpack because this might be might make a lot of different for, difference for accidental Americans, and that's in Section 77. 7701, right. so way back in the definitions. Yeah, so look, look, Karen, let's just pause for a minute. Okay, for listeners, 7701 is the definition section in the Internal Revenue Code, right? So for right. listeners who, you know, want to take up reading the Internal Revenue Code instead of perhaps reading the Bible or something, uh, you know, they definitely want to pay attention to 7701. And 7701A50, interestingly, is titled termination of United States citizenship, right? So there's, it's actually in the definition section, you know. Right. And it basically says that an individual shall not cease to be treated as a U.S. citizen before the date in that code section we were just talking about, 877-CAP-A-G-4. But there's an exception in, in, in this definition section. Exception says for uh, dual citizens, it says under regulations prescribed by the secretary, subparagraph A uh, shall not apply to an individual who became at birth a citizen of the United States and the citizen of another country. So this is this is our accidental Americans, right? They, well, they I, I, think, I think it's certainly accidental Americans. Well, listen. It could also be somebody who was born to a, uh, uh, you know, who was born a dual citizen, lived all their life in the United States. Why not? Could also be that. But certainly it would cover your standard accidental Americans. Um, So when it says subparagraph A shall not apply to that person, what does that mean, John? Well, Karen, you know, you, you always ask me such easy questions. Exactly. Well, the answer is, of course, I don't know. But let me try to unpack this a little bit, okay? First, I just want to say that um, I have never seen any blog posts or articles written about this other than a couple that I've written over the years. Um, so there's not, there's not a lot of awareness of this particular section. But it begins by saying under regulations prescribed by the secretary. I just want to pause here for listeners, okay, because this next point is critical. This is a regulatory exception. It does not require a law passed by Congress. In its own express terms, it's pursuant to regulations prescribed by the secretary, right? So it's instructing the secretary Treasury Secretary to prescribe regulations. I think somebody ought to call up Janet Yellen right now tonight and say, get on with this. This is your job. Yeah. Under regulations prescribed by the Secretary, subparagraph A, meaning you don't lose citizenship unless you have a CLN. Now, it says 
shall, shall, shall not apply. This is incredible stuff. Shall not apply. Not may not apply. Not, but says shall not apply to an individual who became at birth a citizen of the United States and a citizen of the, another country. Now, Karen, what's extraordinary about this is, all right, that it makes no mention of where that dual citizen from birth is living today when they want to use it. They could be living in the United States or anywhere. It's does not it, like doesn't it, even require that they still be the, that they still be a dual citizen. That's true. That's true. I mean, maybe it applies. It's a reward for those who reward, who renounce their other citizenship. I mean, it's truly incredible uh, that this exists in the way that it's phrased. And, you know, and then the question is, it says under regulations prescribed. I mean, there, there are multiple ways that could be deter interpreted. Doesn't mean the secretary is required to make regulations. Doesn't mean that if they don't make regulations, the fact they haven't made regulations means that doesn't apply to dual citizens at all. Can you talk about what it is that, that is that does not apply? Can you be more specific about that? Yeah, I think well, what I think what John's saying is that for dual citizens, the Treasury can, should be making regulations that say how they can. Be, cease to be treated as a U.S. citizen for tax purposes without having a CLN or a certificate exactly right. of nationality. Exactly right. I mean, this is amazing stuff, right? Because let's imagine that you're one of these poor accidentals somewhere in Europe, you know, and everywhere you go, it has your place of birth. And, uh, you know, somebody takes one look at that and says, ugh, U.S.ness, we don't want any of it no bank account, no nothing, all this stuff because you're a U.S. citizen, that person could say, well, I may have been born a U.S. citizen, but hey, I was born a French citizen or a German citizen on that same day. And because of that fact, 7701850, this B, this dual citizen, citizen's exemption, could work for them, right? I mean, it clearly would work if the secretary made the appropriate regulations, right, to exempt them from this. Clearly, it would work if the if the secretary made regulations. Now, I was reading, I was reading online that you know there, that uh, European legislators are starting to take an interest in this, that they're having discussions with U.S. Treasury or U.S. tax people, what have you. And it would seem to me that this ought to be raised as part of the discussion, because that way nobody can say, well, you know, we have to make a new law or this is what the law says or we, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, the point is that the law, the law specifically has a mechanism to exempt that group of people from this whore, this fact of whore, right? Right. Now, how cool is that? Yeah, yeah, sounds like a um, an avenue that uh, should be explored. Getting the um, secretary of the treasury to, you know, create the regulations that Congress has asked for. Exactly, and in so doing, make it clear. All right, 
that this type of problem does not apply to a specific group of people who are dual citizens from birth. Exactly. I mean, okay. you know, I think this is this is interesting stuff because it removes the need to renounce, right? And as Laura points out, the best part about it is, and frankly, the most ridiculous and unfair, but that's how the cookie crumbles. The best part is that those people can smirk and say, ha ha, I'm not a U.S. citizen for tax purposes, but by God, I'll keep that passport, right? There's, there's nothing in there unless the secretary comes up with regulations that say otherwise. I don't think the secretary has jurisdiction over the immigration laws. Right. I think I think there's a there's a logic to that, and there's also something terrible about that. The logic to that is that you certainly can't give to the secretary of the treasury power to decide under what other circumstances someone is not a US citizen because you have to have some kind of mechanism um, in place that protects people from losing their citizenship for immigration purposes without them wanting to lose it. You have to have a protection in place for that. Um, this can't be something that happens just because the secretary decided how it would happen. But the terrible thing about that is that you've just created two different classes of, of citizens because this is actually quite a great thing for people who qualify, but you've got a whole other class of citizens, people who weren't dual citizens at birth that do not qualify for this. But, um, and surely you have a serious equal protection question there. Well, I, I don't know, Laura. I mean, um, it's been a long time since I've heard anybody, uh, you know, make a suggestion with a straight face that there's any equality of citizenship in the United States. Uh, there is no doubt that dual citizens are preferred citizens. They're a better class of citizens. We see it here in this section. We see in the dual citizenship exemption to the exit tax. I mean, there's just no doubt about it. Right. You know, if you're born in the United States, if your father or mother was a citizen of another country and that citizenship can be passed down to you, I mean, it's unfortunate. But I mean, I think we need to be very clear. Those are preferred citizens. They have certain benefits that others don't. I mean, it, it, I mean can any reasonable argument be made to the contrary? Well, I think you're right. I'm just saying that it raises equal protection questions. I, you know, I think it does, Laura, and I think that that's precisely, you know, where you might want to uh, expend some of your, you know, your brilliant energy and scholarship. But for the moment, I mean, let's imagine, okay, that the imaging is the Titanic. It's going down. You know, people have to get out of U.S. citizenship or get out of this problem. And, you know, it's kind of like this, the dual citizens, uh, they were first class passengers on the Titanic. They certainly so, have an easier way out. There's a lot of treasury to recognize their obligation to uh, create these regulations. Yeah, there's a lot of for them. I think you mean they're the women and the children. <laughs> <laughs> okay, they're the women and the children. Okay, but my point is simply this, that what the United States has done has in fact created through their tax code, sort of a caste system when it comes to citizenship. 
And there's absolutely no question that those U.S. citizens who are dual citizens from birth have privileges and rights that those who were born only Americans do not. I mean, I think it's, it's really extraordinary that the United States, you know, w- w- would construct laws like this, right? Which so discriminate against, for example, U.S. citizens who can trace their lineage back to the Revolutionary War, the Daughters of the American Revolution or something like that. Those are the lowest class citizens, you know, and the other ones are, you know, I mean, I mean, it may be unpleasant to hear this, but this is exactly what's going on. And I think it might be worth all those people in the United States who have grandparents who are, you know, citizens of Italy or, you know, Ireland or, you know, any of these places, right, to consider whether they may have dual citizenship as well. Okay, well, John, that's been really interesting. And um, I hope Treasury takes up the uh, challenge and, and create some regulations under this section. Well, you know, the way I read it, I think that I actually think they're required to. The way I read this, I don't think they can ignore this. It says under regulations prescribed by the secretary, sub shall not apply. Yep. What do you think? Do you read that as saying they have to? Yeah. I guess they just have, they probably know that and just haven't gotten around to it yet. What do you think, Laura? Well, obviously. All right. Well, this has been an interesting discussion. Thank you, Karen. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. Uh, any final comments on this at all? Or no. Nope. All right. Well, something to think about for sure. <laughs>